thank you for your word. We thank you that even just in the reading of it right there, your spirit that dwells in us takes that, works it into our hearts, uh, gives us wisdom to, to understand you in it, to love you through it, and to obey you because of it. And so we pray, Lord, that that is what we do with this this morning as we go through the rest of James, that we would be encouraged, challenged, convicted by you and your word to live out our faith together as a body of Christ for your glory and our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before COVID started, and, and it's, like, it's like one of these things where it's like you just say before COVID now, like it's been this thing forever, right? Uh, it's only been four months, but it feels like ages, doesn't it? But before COVID started, consumer Christianity in America made it really easy for us to think that we could be a part of a church without actually being a part of a church. And, and the, one of the blessings that I've seen from COVID um, is that it's, it's sort of taking that individualism and, and, that, and that consumer mindset and kicking it out the door and helping people understand the need to be together, the need to be a part of something greater than yourself, the need to be in and among one another's lives. Um, if you remember that first Sunday uh, that we did online, uh, one of our prayers was that the Lord would, would let us feel the pain of not gathering so that we long for it even more, right? And so one of the blessings that I see in, in the Lord using this pandemic is, is that it's actually taking the frivolous stuff and pushing it down and bringing up what's actually necessary for us to focus on. And so it's, it's giving us opportunities as a church to actually not just profess our faith, but to practice it together and to be real about it. But we tend to, to undervalue uh, our need for the body of Christ. And so we underestimate or we undervalue our personal involvement in the corporate body, in the body as a whole. But if we fail to, to see our personal faith as part of the corporate faith, then what happens is we guard ourselves from our brothers and sisters of, in Christ instead of actually giving ourselves to them. But because the body of Christ is, is made up of individual believers, it is individual believers. It has to be your personal faith, right? But because it's made up of individual believers that profess the same thing, then we should live together in a way that is reflective of the reality that we profess together. And so if we're going to profess faith together, we need to practice faith together. In today's passage, we're going to see that as a family of God that puts faith in action, we need to mean what we say, we need to earnestly pray, and we need to help those who stray. Love how it just nice and neatly fit into a good rhyme for us to remember. We need to mean what we say. Look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no so that you won't fall under judgment. Now, many scholars um, mark this verse 12 as a transitional verse. Some, some people put it on, on the end of, of the last section that we talked about Friday, or, or Friday, I don't know where that came from, uh, last week. 
And, uh, and some people will, will put it as this transitional standalone verse and, and kind of leading into this, um, this last part, the close of the letter. Not entirely clear where the phrase, uh, whether the phrase above all is, is concluding what he said previously or sort of like above all, like all of this. Um, but either way, what's clear is what the point that James is making here. It's say what you mean and mean what you say, Right? Keep your word. Follow through. Be truthful. James is drawing just like he has throughout his whole letter from the Old Testament teaching and from the teaching of Jesus. We've already seen or or heard echoes of Leviticus 19 uh, throughout this letter. Um, Leviticus 19 at the beginning centers around God's command for the Israelites to be holy because he is holy and he is their God. He is the Lord, their God. And so James mentions the royal law of love in chapter 2. That is Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. And here he's alluding to Leviticus 19.12, where God says, do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God, I am the Lord. And so James also pulls a lot from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, Jesus says, Again, you've heard it said, it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Now we need to understand that James uh, and Jesus, neither one of them are um, prohibiting or condemning every kind of oath. There's official oaths in the Old Testament, there's official oaths in the New Testament, um, especially important for keeping covenants. But what's being prohibited is swearing on something making an oath using objects as witnesses rather than God himself. To swear by a created thing rather than the creator himself is a form of idolatry. All of Leviticus 19 is framed up with, I am the Lord, your God. Okay? So don't swear on your mother's grave, but it's not necessarily wrong to say, God is my witness. You see Paul use that language in several of his letters. But what James is telling his readers and what Jesus was teaching is is that you should be truthful. You should actually be so truthful in what you say that there's no reason to bolster that with an oath. It's kind of the boy who cried wolf mentality, right? Your yes and your no should be so reliable that people know you to be one who tells the truth and not as someone who doesn't follow through with what you say. So when I tell my kids, if they're, if they're misbehaving, I tell them, hey, if you do that again, you're going to have a consequence. And then they do that again, and I say, I mean it. Next time you do that, you're going to have a consequence. Or I count to three, and I don't follow through on that. What am I teaching them? I'm teaching them to disregard my word because my yes is not yes and my no is not no to them, Right? Now, we've all been guilty of this in one form or another. We, we've backed out on commitments last minute for no real good reason. 
We've made promises that we haven't kept. We've said things we didn't mean. James tells his readers, listen, that shouldn't be so. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Why? What does he say? So you won't fall under judgment. Now, he's hit this theme of judgment pretty hard in his letter, which is really peculiar because he's writing to a bunch of Christians, right? And the glorious reality for all who have put their faith in Christ is that our judgment, our condemnation has been taken off of us, removed from us and placed on Christ at the cross. Romans 8 says that there is now no more condemnation, no more judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I think we would all understand that not everyone who professes faith in Christ actually practices faith in Christ. Remember why James is writing this letter in the first place. Because many of his leaders, uh, uh, the, the, the people, readers, are professing faith in Christ, but are behaving more like the world than they are like Jesus. And so faith that doesn't persevere in godly fruit is not true faith. James talked about this, right? It's dead on arrival. It's, it, faith without works is dead. It's not really faith at all. And so he appeals to the coming judgment of the Lord. We saw this last week as a comfort for those who truly believe, knowing that, that they don't have to experience that in the end, and as an appeal for them to, to keep going, to, to, uh, to persevere in their suffering and to endure it, knowing that everything will be made right at the end. But he uses the coming judgment as a warning then for those who profess faith in Christ to test their genuineness, test their faith now and see if it's true so that they won't be proven in the end to be unbelievers and fall under God's judgment. Jesus himself said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Can't just profess our faith, we have to practice it. So then why is it important for us to keep our word, our individual word, for the sake of the body of Christ? How will, your, or how will our corporate profession be credible if your personal one isn't? See how that works? If you are not known for keeping your word and then you say, I believe in Jesus along with these people, that's damaging to the corporate profession. Your lack of credibility plays into the group's credibility. And as a community that's designed to grow more and more deeply committed to one another and to the Lord, it's hard to do that when a person or a group of people make it a habit of not following through on their commitments and show no desire to change. And so one of the things when we do the membership class, one of the things ultimately to becoming a member here is having a membership covenant. There's going to be commitments that you're going to make to each other and that you're going, it's a two-way street. So you're, you're making a commitment, but you're also in, in, in signing that covenant. You, you are, you are um, participating in receiving the, the same commitments from the other members of the body. But if you don't follow through on those, well, then your yes is not your yes and your no is not your no. And so you're not working to build unity to, to keep the profession of faith pure. You're working to tear it down. Now, 
as followers of God who never fails to keep his word, we ought to reflect that as his people by keeping ours, right? We know that our remaining sin makes this impossible. I know you're probably sitting there going, we're, we've, we've messed up already, right? We're, we're done. We can't do that. Our ability or inability to do that should not hinder our desire to do that. Because God has given us his word and his spirit and his church to help us. And he's renewed our hearts through faith in Christ. And he's given us his spirit to enable us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And so then when we actually fall or when we fail at keeping our word, guess what? We trust in the God who keeps his. And what does he say? If you confess your sins, I am faithful. I am righteous to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God will keep that word. And so we confess our sin and we receive forgiveness and we marvel at the beauty of Christ's sacrifice over and over and over uh, and we just never stop thinking about it. His sacrifice on our behalf and, and the riches of God's love for us in Jesus and then we grow in our love for him and in our desire to do what he commands. So don't give people a reason to doubt what you say. Shouldn't have to swear an oath to stand that up, to shore that up. Instead, you need to let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. I need to grow in this myself. If we want to practice what we profess, we need to mean what we say. We also need to earnestly pray. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Now James asks a series of rhetorical questions here in verses 13 and 14 so that he can offer the solution, right? We've seen this before. He asks a rhetorical question to get the readers to think about the answer and then he gives them the answer. Is anyone among you suffering? Well, yes, they are, right? We know this. He opened his letter that way. Consider it joy when you suffer many trials, right? He knows that. They know that. He tells them to ask God for wisdom in the trial in chapter 1. What does he say they should do here? Are you suffering? Yeah. You should pray. You should pray. It's the same thing he talks about at the beginning of the letter. Prayer fuels our endurance as we suffer through various trials. He says, is anyone cheerful? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not suffering, right? Because what does he say in chapter 1? Count it joy when you suffer trials of various kinds. This could be that they're actually doing that. That they actually are finding joy in the trial. And so they're cheerful. And so James says, you should sing songs of praise. You should praise God for that. You should be grateful that that's happening. Thank God and worship Him for giving you the right outlook and continuing the endurance to give you that endurance that you need. 
says, is anyone among you sick? He should call the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the, of the Lord. Now, olive oil had this uh, medicinal purpose um, back then. It was one of the uses for it. But if we think about the context here that James is talking about this in, it's probably not what he had in mind when he says that the elders anoint that person with oil. See, the focus here is on prayer. It's about approaching God. And in the Old Testament, the anointing of oil was this symbolic consecration, purification of oneself as you approached the Lord, setting apart for uh, the Lord's use and so, uh, or for the Lord's special attention. And so the anointing of the sick person here is most likely a way to remind them that they're going to be brought before the Lord in prayer and in dependence upon the healing power of the Holy Spirit. You see that the elders anoint the sick person in the name of the Lord. The emphasis here is on God as the healer, not the oil. And the person's healing isn't dependent upon the faith of, of the people who pray for you. You may have heard people say that. Well, you just need to have more faith, right? You're not praying hard enough. That's not what James is saying here. When, when he says that the prayer of faith will save the sick person, he's not implying that all illness will be healed if we just call the elders, anoint with oil, if we have enough faith and we pray fervently enough. He's not saying that. He's not emphasizing faith in the healing itself, but rather in the one who heals. It's this confident reliance on God's sovereignty and God's goodness as the one who holds power over all life and death. Only he has the power to heal, both physically and spiritually. And so we pray, we pray. We ask him for it. I think sometimes we err on the side of caution, maybe even bordering on disbelief that God will actually heal someone physically if we pray for it. Especially if it's a, if it's a terminal illness or maybe even you, you've had experience with someone close to you with a severe case of COVID or, or whatever. And we see the devastation that these things cause and we, and we go... This feels kind of useless to pray, pray for this healing. The odds aren't good, right? And so we pray something like this. We, 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 we say, Lord, if, if it's your will, please heal this person, but no matter what happens, please give them the strength they need to trust you. Now, that's a good prayer. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. That's a biblical prayer. But we don't have to feel bad about asking God for physical healing. In fact, James tells us exactly to do that here. Is any one of you sick? The Greek word there is sick, physically sick. Pray, pray, ask God for healing. It's not sinful to ask God to heal someone who is sick, but if we do ask for physical healing, we do need to understand that that doesn't mean that God will always grant it. Sometimes we ask for good things that aren't sinful. They're not out of impure motives, but God still doesn't grant what we ask because it isn't in line with his specific will for that person in that situation. We don't know whether or not it's God's will to heal a brother or sister physically so that he can reveal himself in a greater way and bring more people to himself 
create more opportunities for the gospel to be shared that way. We don't know if, if, if in his sovereignty and goodness, he's going to allow them to continue in that sickness so that he can do the same thing, reveal more of himself and, and, and help people depend on him in a deeper way and experience the gospel in its fullness. Here's what we can be confident in, though. God is good. God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty and goodness, he set forth this plan of redemption. And everything that he works in the history of the world is according to that plan. And so whatever he chooses to do in the situation that you're asking him to intervene in, you can be sure that it's ultimately good for all of the people involved and it's exactly according to his good pleasure, to his good plan. If we we ask in faith precisely because God is able to grant what we ask and he delights in doing so. I struggle with that. I don't know why. Sometimes I just feel like, like it's not worth asking. Not because God is mean, but I just... He delights. He delights in his children coming to him and asking. Now the context here is, is praying for a brother or sister in Christ. And so, again, there's another layer here of confidence. We can ask in faith for physical healing for a brother or sister because we know that ultimately God will grant it either in this life or in the resurrection to come, right? When they get glorified bodies in eternity, the physical ailments are gone. James says that the prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. Now, Jesus healed both physically and spiritually during his earthly ministry and oftentimes they went hand in hand. Think back with me in in Mark's gospel, chapter 2. When the friends lowered the, the paralytic man through the roof, right? It says, Jesus, seeing their faith, looked at the paralytic man and said, son, your sins are forgiven. And then what did he do? Take up your mat and walk. Go home. And what did he do? He got up and left, right? How about Mark chapter 5, when Jairus comes to Jesus and said, my daughter is dying, and on the way, the woman that's bleeding sneaks up and touches Jesus' robe. He turns around and he says, why did you do that? That's not what he said. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Physical, spiritual healing took place right there. And then Jairus gets the news that his daughter had died because they didn't make it in time. And he starts to fret. And what does Jesus say to Jairus? Don't be afraid. Only believe. Have faith, Jairus. And when they get to the house... Jesus takes the girl by the hand and raises her up. Physical and spiritual healing took place. James uses the same kind of language here in verse 15, implying that healing uh, that takes place both physically and spiritually when faith is exercised. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now we need to understand this too. Not all sickness is a direct result of sin, but some is. Some is. Jesus proved that not every sickness uh, is a direct result of sin with the blind man in, uh, John, in 
John chapter 9. The disciple says, Lord, who, whose parents sinned that he ended up this way? He said, nobody did. Nobody did. But then Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for observing, uh, observing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and bringing judgment upon themselves. And he says, this is why many of you are sick. This is why many of you are ill. And, and this is why some of you have died. So we need to understand, not every sickness is a result directly of someone's sin, but sometimes it is. And so James says, we need to take care of the spiritual aspect when there's a physical aspect. We can't overlook that. He emphasizes the importance of the spiritual benefits of prayer alongside the physical benefits. A prayer of faith, what, what is that? It comes from a surrendered heart, right? You can't believe, you can't have faith if your heart is hardened. One that's humble before the Lord and re- reliant on his grace and power. This is the posture that we come to God in. When somebody in the body of Christ is sick, it gives us the opportunity to recognize the devastating effects of sin from the fall. Even if the sickness is not a direct result of the person's specific sins, when we look at the grand story of redemption, we understand that all sickness is a direct result of the curse of sin. And we feel its effects as members of the same body. And so in the same way, we call on others for help when we're physically sick. James says, call on each other for help when we're spiritually sick. We confess our sins to one another. We pray for each other so that we may be healed. He says that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its, in its effect. Now remember the context again. James frames this statement uh, not just praying for yourself, but asking for prayer from others. This is a corporate thing. Listen, when you're desperately sick, let's be honest, you don't want to pray. And even if you do, you don't have the endurance to continue. It's difficult for someone who is sick to keep coming to the Lord in prayer. And so we need help. We need others to intercede on our behalf. We need to intercede on behalf of others. You need to ask for help from the body of Christ. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. We might be tempting, because he's, he mentioned the elders here, that this is uh, uh, the, the, the righteous person that he's talking about is the elders of the church. But look at what he says in the first part of verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is a prayer of faith. Any believer can pray like that. James points to the prophet Elijah as an example. Look at verse 17 and 18. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. And then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now, Elijah was a major figure in the history of Israel as a prophet of God. They were known as a man of God. Elijah was a man of God, but that's not what James is appealing to here. He was a man of God, but James says he's still a man, right? He doesn't say Elijah was a major prophet. What does he say? Elijah was a human being like we are. And he prayed, and these things happened. 
God did great miracles through Elijah, not because Elijah was Elijah, I think we need to hear this, but because God is God. James doesn't focus on Elijah's accomplishments here. He focuses on Elijah's prayer life and his trust in the Lord. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And guess what? Didn't rain for three and a half years. Maybe some of you are praying for that right now. Please stop. Maybe you prayed for the rain and we got some, so thank you. Elijah prayed again and it rained again. I love how James words it. It says, the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. It draws us back into his letter and the things that he said. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows, James 1.17. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains, James 5.7. You see, we count as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and you've seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, James 5, 11. When we pray, we're praying to this God. We're praying to the same God that Elijah prayed to. The God who does not change and gives good and perfect gifts from above because he is compassionate and merciful. This is how he describes himself and we can take him at his word. So we ought to pray earnestly because the same God who answered Elijah's prayers is the same God who will answer ours. And so how should we pray? James says, we ask in faith without doubting, James 1.5. And with the right motives, James 4.3, we pray believing that God will do what he pleases and that what he pleases will always, always, always be for our good and his glory. We pray as children who come to their father knowing that the Father loves to give good gifts to his children. We confess our sins to one another because that has healing effect on our hearts. It humbles us before the Lord and it produces the fruit of righteousness in us and it sends the rains of forgiveness and grace and mercy and love so that we can pray to the Lord from a pure heart with pure motives. And we pray for physical healing because, listen, it might actually be what God wants to do in that particular circumstance as a way to reveal himself to others and lead to spiritual healing. Or it might be that he chooses not to. But we don't know. Only God knows. So we ought to ask him without hesitation. If we want to practice what we profess, we need to earnestly pray. And lastly, we need to help those who stray. Look at verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that sinner know that whoever, or let, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from er, the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain because the Israelites were worshiping a false god, Baal, who was the god of thunder, the god of storms, the god of rain. They'd strayed from the truth. They wandered away from the Lord, their God. And Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain so that the Lord could show himself to be true and Baal to be false and that he would turn the hearts back of his people to himself. James is writing to God's people who have begun to stray 
from the truth. He spent the whole letter revealing their double-mindedness and the errors of their way in order to turn them back to the Lord in humble repentance so that they can be forgiven and live according to the truth that they know. And he closes his letter by emphasizing the need for his readers to do this with each other. Again, it's a corporate thing. How does he emphasize this? He, he points to the spiritual health that it brings to the body of Christ. The imagery that he uses here is similar to the benefits of physical healing that he describes in verse 15. Verse 15 says, The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. What does he say in verse 20? Whoever turns the sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Same word, save there. And cover a multitude of sins. The spiritual health of the body of Christ as a whole depends on the spiritual health of its individual members. And so we can't ignore that. If someone strays from the truth, that means that they're no longer humbly receiving the implanted word that is able to save their soul and they're no longer ridding themselves of all moral filth and evil that's so prevalent. James 1.21 means that bitter envy and selfish ambition in their hearts are causing them to boast and deny the truth. James 3.14, they're hearers but not doers of the word and they're deceiving themselves. James 1.22, they've committed sin and they're convicted by the law as transgressors. James 2.9. When we don't address the sin of e- in each other's lives as believers in the body of Christ, what we do is communicate that that sin is acceptable behavior in the body of Christ. And the longer it remains unaddressed, the more acceptable it becomes and the more acceptable it becomes, the more people join in and the more uh, the, the spiritual sickness spreads throughout the body. Paul in Galatians talks about it in terms of, of leaven ruining the whole batch of dough, working its way through the whole batch. And so it's vital. It's absolutely important that when we see a brother or sister wandering from the truth, we go after them What has Christ done for us? He's the good shepherd. We all like sheep have gone astray. Everyone's turned and gone his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all to bring us back. We need to go after the wandering brother or sister, not to follow them into sin, but to turn them back from it. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, a.k.a. the righteous person, Again, not just elders. Restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. James 1.20, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Paul, the author of Hebrews, and James all agree. We need to go after the wanderer. 
We need to help the person that strays. James isn't implying that a true believer can lose their salvation here. In chapter 1, he reminded his readers that God chose to give them birth by the word of truth. In other words, God gave them new life when they heard the gospel and they believed it. It was his doing by his own choice, James says. And that can't be undone. But the only way for us, again, finite minds, to know who is truly a believer is if they continue in that belief. That's why James says, faith without works is dead. You have no proof. If they continue in that belief by putting their faith in action, in chapter 1, James says, the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. And he says, blessed is the one who endures the trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So when a brother or sister strays from the truth, we don't automatically wave red flags and assume that they were never a believer to begin with and write them off. That's unloving. No, we treat them as a beloved family member who has gone astray, who has wandered into danger, and we make every effort in love to turn them back from the error of their way by bringing them the truth. That's what they've wandered from. That's what we need them to bring them back to. And we do that in love. If, if that brother or sister listens, the wayward sinner is restored and their sins are covered because they're forgiven. Jesus gives us a model of what this looks like in Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he, but if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever. Continue to share the gospel. Pursue them in love. This is the biblical model of church discipline. I say those words and you might flinch. We'll cover the ins and outs of it as we do our membership class because it's a vital part of being a body of Christ together. It's a biblical part of being a body of Christ together. It gets a bad rap though because a lot of churches do it poorly. Maybe you've experienced that. But it's something that Jesus himself calls us to do, and James tells us why here. So that the church, as a family, that we continue to persevere in the perfect law of freedom together. We keep walking in the truth together. We keep enduring the trials together. We keep helping each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives together so that we can experience the fullness of the freedom that we have in Christ together and hold firmly to that reality to the very end together so that we can receive the crown of life together. Now we know that God and God alone is the one who restores and God and God alone is the one who forgives. We know that it's through no work of our own, but only through faith in Christ's finished work on the cross that allows us to be forgiven and restored. It's by his grace, through faith in Christ. His life of obedience covers our disobedience. His death covers our debt of sin. His resurrection secures 
our justification, our right standing before God, and his ascension into heaven back on the throne secures our eternal place with him in the resurrection to come. But as recipients of his grace, we become instruments of his grace in one another's lives. As those who have been reconciled to Christ, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. As God's redeemed children, we participate in his plan of redemption by proclaiming the glories and pointing people to the Redeemer himself. And we need to be honest, sometimes we are the ones that need this help, right? Sometimes we are drawn away and enticed by our own evil desires and, and give in to the passions that wage war within us. James 1 and James uh, 4 talked about that. And when that happens, we need brothers and sisters in our lives that know us well enough to notice when we're straying from the truth and to approach us in that because you won't go to them. We're blind to our own blindness. We, we put up walls. We guard ourselves instead of giving ourselves to one another. We need them to love us enough to speak the truth in love and to warn us of the dangers that lie ahead if we continue in the path that we're on. We need them to love Christ enough to proclaim his gospel and point us back to him and his kindness that leads us to repentance. We need them to know his tenderness enough to be tender, to be tender with us and to lead us gently and patiently toward restoration. That's the whole purpose of church discipline instead of heaping condemnation on us. And we need to do the same for our brothers and sisters when they stray. If we're going to profess faith together, we have to practice faith together. We need to put our faith in action as a family of God that's humbly surrendered to Jesus and seeks his wisdom together. But how can we do that if we can't take each other at our word? We need to mean what we say. How can we do that if we don't petition the Lord on behalf of one another? We need to earnestly pray. And how can we do that if we're unwilling to be lovingly intrusive in each other's lives for the sake of Christ's name and the purity of his church? We need to help those who stray. So let's not just be a church of individuals who go to Redeemer Community Church. Let's be a family of God's people that profess and practice the glories of the Redeemer, the glories of being redeemed together. Amen? Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're thankful, God, that even though we've finished James as a corporate family now, that as individuals we can go back and read this over and over and over and meditate on it and share it with one another and continue to apply it to our lives. We thank you that your word continues to work itself in us for the rest of our lives. And we pray that that happens. Lord, we pray that as we gather and come back and, uh, and dig back into Mark, that we are so captivated with Christ as we, as we continue to read through that and the, and the good news of the gospel, that it is so saturated in our minds and hearts and souls that we just can't help but think about it, pray, in, in accordance with it, speak uh, the truth of it, and live it out together as your body. We pray, God, that you would help us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.